All right, let's get after it. Uh, good service so far, man. I, we haven't even preached a single verse, but God's meeting with us. I believe that. And uh, Hebrews chapter number 11 uh, is where we finished. You're going to go to Hebrews chapter number 12. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you need to figure out where Hebrews is, it's very much toward the back of the Bible. You can look in the front of your Bible. There's going to be a table of contents that will tell you what page number that's on. Um, we're going to pick up in verse or in chapter number 12. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 is the is basically the front porch of Hebrews chapter 12, right? We have to remember, and you know this, the folks who have been a part of our church for a long time, uh, verses belong in context, right? And so chapter 12 belongs on the back end of chapter 11. God inspired it that way. And the chapter references and verse references, those are, those are man-made additions that are a blessing. They help us kind of be able to, you know, could you imagine if this morning I told you, hey, all right, open your Bible and go to the 734th word of the book of Hebrews. You, it would literally take us forever to figure out where we are. And so chapter references are a benefit, but they're not inspired. And so I I say that to say this, make sure we keep it all kind of tucked into itself. Um, When this book was written, uh, it was to be read in a congregation of Jewish people, this particular book, and the whole thing would be read, all of it. It wouldn't just, they wouldn't just read part of it and then catch up later. Uh, We, on the other hand, are doing, you know, one chapter at a time. And even that, we're not making it through a whole chapter. I think it took us three weeks to get through Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 11 is this, this beautiful call of faith, uh, call to faith and hall of faith. Uh, but it would be important to remember that chapter in the context of the whole book. Uh, the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, right? We've established that for the last 11 chapters, that Jesus is better. He's a better high priest, uh, that Jesus is a, a better mediator than Moses was. And so as we get to Hebrews chapter 11, don't lose the reality of the book that yes, uh, the author is going to go through and list a bunch of heroes of the faith. And I, I really, look look at me, I, I really use that word loosely. Um, heroes is a dangerous thing. And uh, you're going to find that Jesus is the sole author and finisher of our faith. And we follow him, we look unto him. Now, there are people whose faith you can look at and say, man, I'm challenged by that. That's what Hebrews 11 was supposed to be. Hebrews 11 was not supposed to be, hey, Jews, worship these people, follow these people, make them your idol. No, in fact, that's the very opposite of the intention of the book. The whole intention of the book is to look to Jesus. Um, but in Hebrews chapter 11, we, we see a group of people who had looked to Jesus. Now, whether they knew it or not, they were looking to Jesus, if you'll remember. Uh, Jacob was faithful for the promise. Well, the promise was Jesus. He didn't quite know that. Moses chose rather to uh, uh, the, the reproaches of Christ rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, understand Christ is a promise of the Messiah, and Moses, to some degree or another, would have known that promise that was passed from Abraham. And so he is waiting for the Christ, though he doesn't know the name is Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 11, what we're finding is these people were following what you and I now see clearly. Um, we sang the, the men, I'm so grateful Brother Hunter found that song, Hope of the Ages, last Sunday night, the men's uh, group sang it. And there's a line in that song that has just stuck in my head this Christmas. The line says this, what they longed for, Hebrews 11, those people, Abraham longed for it. Jacob longed for it. And the song says, what they longed for, we have seen. What was promised, man, we get to believe. And so, you know, Moses is holding on to this promise. There's coming to Christ and you and I have, we know his name. We know where he was born. We know who his stepfather was. We know who his brethren were. And so what was promised, we now get to believe in full beauty and revelation through the New Testament. And so Jesus is better. Uh, he is the path we should follow. He's the, the, the true hero of our faith. And so don't get lost in the weeds in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 was not about exalting any man but rather creating a crowd 
of people that we run with. Now that's important because you're about to see what I mean in a second. Hebrews 11 is about us knowing, hey, there are other people who are flesh and blood just like you, who have walked this road and run their race and faced their temptation, just like Moses had temptation to stay in the palace, but he chose to suffer. There are people who have gone before us who have run their race and you and I can run our race, but we're not looking to them, we're looking to Jesus. So I know it's kind of a big theme, big idea, but let's actually see it right in our text. So look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. It says, wherefore, now that's, that's an important word. He, uh, the, the word wherefore just means this. It's an emphatic marker of result. So if I were to say one plus one equals, the word equals is wherefore. So because of this, it equals two. So because of what? Because of Hebrews 11. Because of all these people who have run their race with patience and set aside their priorities and held to and cling to those promises of the Messiah, the promise that Jacob held to, uh, Enoch walked with God and he was not. These people, and because of them, this, this group, notice what it says, wherefore seeing we also are compassed, that means surrounded, about with so great a cloud, a group of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run. Wherefore, because of those folks, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, I said this before. Sometimes we misassociate this particular passage to mean that, you know, in heaven, our great uncle is looking down on us and they're watching. So because they're watching, we should run. That's not what that passage is talking about. The, the word wherefore gives us that clue. As a result, the equal mark of, of chapter 12, that word wherefore, means because of those folks, because of Hebrews 11, because of Enoch and Sarah and Jacob and Abraham, wherefore, seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run our race with patience. We well, just talked about these people, this great cloud of witnesses who had run their race. And now it's our responsibility to run our race because they ran theirs. We run ours. You see where that verse is going. Now, this is important. How in the world are we supposed to run our race? There's a couple of very important indicators right there in our passage. Look at it again. Hebrews 12, 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, here's the instruction. How are we going to run the race? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now, that's a really important reality for us to kind of lean into because the fact of the matter is there's a couple things we can learn from this. I would say the first thing, and not in, not, it, it isn't in this order, but I would say the first thing we have to realize is that there is some sins and weights that easily beset us. Um, some folks would call it in preaching, they call it a besetting sin. And I think that's fair. Um, there are certain things that would tempt you that might not tempt me. And there are some things that tempt me that don't tempt you. And uh, maybe you grew up uh, in the world and uh, you, you developed an appetite for alcohol or you developed an appetite for addiction or vice. And we all, to one degree or another, uh, unless you were saved out of the womb, which nobody was, uh, have developed a worldly taste for one thing or another. And uh, you may not, I'll say this, I'm not drawn to alcohol. Uh, I grew up around it. It was prevalent in my household. It destroyed my family. Um, that's why I was adopted and my last name's been changed and I have no middle name. It was the name of my biological father, all this stuff. Uh, just some really dark days. So for me, alcohol, man, that's bad. Like I look at that and I have no desire for it. But you might be here and you're not a worse Christian than me and I'm not a better Christian than you. I've got my own thing. Man, this thing draws me away. But for you, it might be alcohol. For some in the room, it might be lust. Uh, for others in the room, it might be pride. Some in the room, it might be anger. Uh, and you are, there's a, almost a natural 
predisposition toward it. And uh, whereas somebody, they'd walk, you know, in the grocery store and, and my particular Vons, I think, I don't know where the alcohol aisle is. Brother Anderson, you'd know. No, I'm just kidding. That's not fair. I'm just kidding. When I walk in, to, to, to be honest, I don't know where it is because it, it doesn't draw me to it. I've I got no idea. Um, but when you walk in, you might have this just magnetism that pulls you there. And that, again, doesn't make you a worse Christian than me. I've got my own drawing. I've got my own sins that easily beset me. And I've got my own weights I've got to lay aside. And so big picture, chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Hey, those guys did it. Sarah, even though she started wrong with weak faith, Hey, God credited her as as having faith. Do you remember that? And she ran her race, and you and I can run our race, but in order to run our race, we got to set aside some sin. we got to lay aside some weights, and that's important too. Um, A a lot of times when preaching, and I've probably been guilty of this too in my own preaching, we'll talk about weights, you know, like, hey, this thing's not necessarily bad, um, but it still slows you down. And that's that's a fair interpretation, right? There are some things in our life that maybe they're just not, um, what was the word that Paul uses? They're not expedient. Um, they're not necessarily sinful, but they're not helping you. Um, you know, you're caught up with this thing and it's not a bad thing, like maybe a retirement. And I know we kind of pick on that. I'm for retirement. You should save for retirement. A just man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. There's nothing wrong with that. Use it for Jesus. Love your family. All good. But sometimes even that, that's not bad, can become a weight and you're distracted by it, and you can't run your race because you're so focused on this. You're skipping church because you're so focused on this. Um, and I would say, yeah, that's a weight. But you know what else is a weight? There are other weights that aren't, aren't like that. I would say weights can also be this. Sometimes we carry the weight of people's expectations. Like, oh, man, I got to run my race, but that person wants me to do this. Or I got to run my weight race, but I've got this discouragement. I've got to run my race, but I've got this baggage over here, and I, I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling. And it's not necessarily sin, but it's stuff that slows you down in your race. And again, the author is calling us, hey, pay attention to those people, right? Somehow Samson, with all of his temptation, made it in the hall of faith, right? Sarah, with all her doubt, made it in the hall of faith. Jacob, with all his deceit, made it in the hall of faith. And so he tells us, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, one of the things that's important to remember about the race of life, and again, I didn't come up with this illustration, the author here did, um, <clears throat> is that it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Now, you may not know this by looking at me. I'm not a sprinter. Um, I'm not sure why you laughed, Um, but I'm not. I know it might. Thank you, Brother Jim, for not laughing. Um, I'm also not a marathon runner, if we're just going to be honest. Uh, Not a runner. I'll say this. If you ever see me running, you should run too. Something terrible is happening. Um, That's the only time you're going to see me running, okay? I do other exercise, you know, and things like that. I I, I think you should try to stay healthy. I'm working on that. Um, But I don't run. I'm not a runner. I don't like running. It's the worst. Running is like what you do during sports. You know, like imagine taking basketball away from basketball and it just being running. That's how I look at running. Like, that's not a thing. Like, if you're going to run, you should at least have a ball in your hand. Someone should be chasing you and you should be able to hit somebody. Like, I'll do that kind of running, but just, just running is not a thing. Do we have any runners in here? There's a couple of you. Okay, well, we'll pray for you. Noah said that actually the other day. I invited him to go golfing with me. He's like, oh, I don't golf, but I run. And I was like, sorry, kid, you're on your own. <laughs> we don't run in golf, so <laughs> that's why it's my sport. Um, but he says, let us run with patience. That means that there's going to have to be a measurable amount of endurance. That, man, just from day to day, doesn't it feel like that in life sometimes? Oh, I'm so grateful for this chapter. I, I had on the title of my chapter, it's probably the most preachable chapter in all the Hebrews. It's just a preachy chapter. We're going to get on chastisement of the Lord in a minute. It's a great chapter. But the idea of running with patience, that sometimes it's just hard, right? I love what the Bible says. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier. Uh, sometimes you just survive, right? 
There are, there are moments in life you flourish and you grow and man, it's awesome and mountaintop experiences. And then there are times by the grace of Jesus, you're just biting down on your mouthpiece and you're surviving. Um, I've used the illustration before. I'll use it. I just think it's very appropriate. Um, in college, I was doing some, some jiu-jitsu training and things. And there was this monster of a man. His name was Kai. He was like six foot four, 350 pounds, all muscle. And I remember it was my turn to spar him. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to go good. <laughs> and uh, my coach looked at me. He said, all you have to do is survive him. You're not going to beat him. Just survive. Five minutes, just survive. I was like, what? Still doesn't encourage me. <laughs> but what I did was I, I took my mouthpiece, I put it in, and I just, it's called turtle. Anybody know what turtle is? I just tucked my elbows in and I just tried to survive. And sometimes in life, it's just, it's a giant that you're not going to kill. You're just going to survive. And God's going to get glory out of you just making it through. Now, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the battles and sometimes the season and sometimes the heartache, you're not going to be the victor in this life. It's going to be an, a light affliction that afterwards works an exceeding way to glory, but you might not win now. But the beautiful thing is that sometimes you just endure and Jesus is waiting on the other side and your reward is going to be beautiful and great. But he says, run with patience, just endurance the race that is set before you. And so what that means is some things we're going to just have to stop doing, right? Some sins. And that's a big deal in this chapter, actually. He's going to really lean into the idea of walking in holiness. He's going to lean into the idea of walking in unity with the brethren. Unity and, and, and holiness are two big themes in chapter 12. So we'll see some of that. But the idea is some things you're just going to have to kill, right? Some sins, you're going to have to lay them aside. Some things that aren't sin, that's slowing you down. Like, you know, if you can't make it to church on time because you're up till three in the morning playing video games, can I tell you that playing video games is sin? I can tell you excess of anything is sin. So you're playing video games for seven hours. You're, you're, you're being idle. But let's say you just stayed up too late, right? Is that a sin? No. But is it allowing you to run your race? Oh, I couldn't come because I was just so exhausted. Well, that might be a weight you should set aside so you can better serve Jesus and run your race. So look at verse number two. That's all in verse one. It's a packed chapter. So look at verse two. Looking, oh, I love, 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 love this phrase. I'll tell you a little bit of a story about it. Uh, look at verse two. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Um, I, I don't know if you realize how beautiful that phrase is, how utterly unique and poetic that phrase is. Um, when the English Bible was being translated in the 1500s, um, very little in the 1400s, more in the, the early 1600s, um, the, a lot of translators didn't know what to do with that phrase because there's not really an English equivalent. Um, the, the Greek words are, uh, let me give it to you, uh, archegon, that's the word author in our English Bible, and it means this trailblazer, someone who breaks through, uh, uh, the initiator or originator. And then the word finisher in the English is tell ten, And it means this one who makes the completion of something possible. And it's, it's a Greek figure of speech that doesn't necessarily have an English like direct parallel. And William Tyndale is actually the man in the late 1500s who gave us the English phrase author and finisher. And it just it captures beautifully the essence of, chat, of verse number two, that he is both the originator and the finisher. He is the trailblazer, the one who starts to cut through the weeds on our behalf. He's the one who forms the trail, and he is the one who makes completing that trail possible. So think about it in a completely different context. He uses more of a literary context, the author and the finisher. Let's put it in another context. He's the one who, you know, the jungle of impossible living, he's the one who cuts the trail through, and then carries you through that trail. It is, the, the, the Greek and the English phrase is absolutely beautiful, that he is the author and finisher. Uh, and so listen, if we're going to make it in this race, we have to, look at verse 2, looking unto Jesus. He didn't say looking unto the people in chapter 11. 
Now, there are plenty of verses that talk about whose faith follow, right? There are people that you can follow their faith carefully, uh, never make somebody your hero other than Jesus, and that's, that's what the author's saying here. Look unto Jesus. If you're going to make it in this race, look to the one who cut the trail and carries you through. Look to the one who authored your faith, the one who initiated it, the one who started the Old Testament, and the one who finished the New Testament. It's, it's such a beautiful phrase. There's so much, so much uh, beauty in that, that singular thought. Um, so look unto Jesus. So if you're going to finish your race with patience, you got to set aside some sin. You got to set aside some weights and then you're going to have to keep your eyes on Jesus. Listen, and not your problems. You're going to have to keep your eyes on Jesus and not the naysayers. You're going to have to keep your eyes on Jesus and not the enemy, not the losses, not the pain. Fix your eyes directly on the one cutting the trail, writing the story, finishing the story, carrying you through. Cause again, we couldn't make it through the weeds of the law. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to the law. We couldn't cut through that. We could not fulfill the law, so Jesus did. He trailblazed through in perfection, uh, born under the law. You'll see some of that on Wednesday night through Anna and Simeon, that he's born under the law and his sacrifice is being made and all these beautiful things that Jesus under the law, fulfilled the law, cut the way through the law, made a new and living way into the presence of God. It's all there. It's a beautiful phrase, but let's keep reading. Notice how Jesus made it through. This is important. Who says, the Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him. Now, what's the joy what was the joy of the cross? That sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That sounds like an impossible statement. Uh, who the, for the joy that was set before him, listen, was you. It was your redemption and mine. He looked at the cross. Ah, that's joy. Ugh, isn't that like, I can't wrap my little brain around that. It's similar to the fact that I can't wrap my brain around, I believe it's in Psalms, that it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. That word pleased and that word joy, I just... I look at the cross and I think about what he went through and the extreme suffering that he endured and, and, and the contradiction of sinners, all of that. And I think, how could he call that joy? Well, the joy wasn't the cross. Notice what he says. Uh, who for the joy that was set before him, notice what he did, he endured the cross. Now, let me ask you, and I want to be real careful with this, but, but in, in the terms of endurance, it says he endured the cross. He didn't lose his life. He laid down his life. I want to emphatically state that, so don't take my words out of context. He endured the cross, though. He wasn't going to victor the cross. He was going to victor the grave. He was going to, in weakness, and that's a Bible word describing that in his weakness, he allowed this to come upon him, and yet in power, he was raised. Uh, he endured that cross, though. That, but, but notice what he despised. You would think, man, the worst part about the cross was the physical suffering. Not what this verse says. The Bible says, who, uh, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. But notice what he despised, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's important. That hails back to the previous chapter. Remember where he talked about how that this man does not attend that altar anymore. He made one sacrifice and then he sat down, right? The cross was a one-time thing and Jesus was finished. But notice what he says, that he endured the cross, but he despised the shame. Could you imagine the horrid, now we, we understand shame, right? Every person in here doesn't need a framework to know what shame feels like. You've experienced it. Um, maybe nobody knew you were shameful, but you knew it, right? But could you imagine experiencing like, oh, just horrid shame? Like there are, you know, probably nobody in here. I hope not. And if you have, come talk to me afterwards. We'll turn you in. Probably nobody in here has mass murdered anybody, right? But could you imagine the feeling of taking on some shame you've never known? Here's the thing. Jesus never knew the shame of telling a lie. Jesus never knew the shame of being unkind to someone. Jesus never knew the shame of breaking the law. And yet when he was on the cross, that shame came upon him because he took our sin. He who, was, who knew no sin became sin for us. 
all that unrighteousness is placed on him and all at once, hanging on the cross in your place and mine, he felt your shame in mine. And I don't know if you've ever counseled anybody or ever dealt with anybody. And it's like, man, you're trying to help somebody get through a really shameful, embarrassing, you know, man, you wrecked your family and I got to help you through that. That's a really heavy weight to carry from the outside looking in. But Jesus was always on the outside looking in, in terms of shame. And now he is in the middle of it. And that shame is placed upon him. And yes, the cross was painful. But what the worst of it was, was the perfect God now knew what shame feel like, felt like. And that again, hails back to, we have a better high priest because he knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to feel when you're like, nobody could love me because of how filthy I am. Well, Jesus took all our shame and sin upon him and he despised it. He did not enjoy that. He calls this this joy set before him in the redemption of humanity back to himself, but he endured the cross, but he despised the shame. And then the beautiful thing is that he sat down at the right hand of the father. He was done. It was over. The sacrifice was made. There's now no more sacrifice for sin. If we sin willfully before the father, we have no more sacrifice. All those verses we've already seen all fit beautifully within that context. Now, notice further admonishments to keep our eyes on Jesus. And man, we're not even gonna make it past verse five. It says, for consider him... So again, we're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, and now we're considering him. We're trying to run our race. Well, how are we going to do that? Look at him, consider him, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Let me ask you, and you can, we can probably all relate to this. Have you ever endured contradictory statements about yourself from some wicked, sinful person? Someone who's just making it up. Someone who's just, man, they just want to, they just want to tear you down. They just want to insult you. I remember in, in, uh, in junior high, the Lord was really starting to work on me and I had gotten saved. I started trying to live right. And man, there was just some kids. They just, I started carrying my Bible with me every day. And, uh, you say, why would you do that? I wasn't trying to be holier. I was trying to be holy. I was trying to make sure that I, that there was an accountability that said, Hey, I'm not going to look at that filth and I'm not going to participate in some of those dirty jokes and the drugs and all that. All my friends started doing that stuff. So I wanted to make sure I could keep myself pure, but man, there were some people who just set out to contradict as sinners, man. They were, they were trying to besmirge me and come after me. And you've probably experienced that a time or two at work. If you live godly, you'll suffer persecution for the cause of Christ, right? You take a stand and you're a Christian and people know that somebody, some, some person, some wicked sinner is gonna try to contradict your testimony and try to tear you down. And you know, it's not, I don't wanna say beautiful, but what I'm grateful for is that we can consider Jesus who endured that contradiction of sinners against himself. He knows what that's like. He has endured that same uh, uh, accusation and persecution. It says, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. That, hey, we're not greater than our master. Jesus walked through the same muck and mire. He walked through the same mud slinging and filth that you and I have to walk through. And he ran his race and Sarah ran her race and Moses ran his race. And we should consider this reality that the race can be run. Uh, verse number uh, four, there's this really cool admonishment. He says, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Here's what he says. You got more to give. You ever feel like, I just, I can't do this anymore. Anybody feel like that? I've, I've, maybe it's just me. I felt that way. I felt like, man, I just, this is, this is too much. It costs too much. It's, it, you know, it exacts too much out of my life. And here's what the author says. No, 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 no. He said, you can fight all the way to a bloody death. You can resist temptation even to martyrdom. You've not yet resisted till your lifeblood leaves your body. And what that means to me is that the expectation is, I stay faithful in my race all the way till the end. 
that until I've resisted, till the last drop of blood comes out of my body, I'm going to run my race with patience, the joy that was set before him. I'm going to consider him. I'm going to look to him. I'm going to follow him. He is going to be the trailblazer, the way cutter, the way, the one that can carry me through. He's going to be the author and the finisher. He's going to make it possible for me to get to the end. And I'm just going to stay on his heels as we trek through this difficult thing we all call life. Um, and then, you know what, we're going to stop. But verse number five and on, I would encourage you to go ahead and read it. Uh, verse number five and on talks about the chastening of the Lord. And I just want to iterate this. He isn't changing topics. It feels like he is. For like 11 verses, he's going to talk about the chastening of the Lord, right? That God loves those and he chastens them as sons. And it feels like a change of topic because he just said, hey, run your race. And then he's like, and if you get chastened, it's, you know, God loving you. But here's, important, here's the important connection, and I won't have time to, I won't be able to develop it as adequately next week, so let me just develop a link between verses 1 through 4 and, and verses 5 through, like, uh, I think 16. What he's saying is, hey, remember verse 1? Let us lay aside the sin and the weight. He, he's admonishing us to do that. And then he says in verse number 4, we just read it, striving against sin all the way to blood. What he's going to transition into is, hey, if you choose to run this race and not lay aside sin, the Father's going to judge you because he loves you. Because he cares about you. And that chastening is not going to feel ple- pleasant in the moment, but it's going to yield peaceable fruits of righteousness. He is good. If you don't run your race well, he will chasten you so you can run well. And it's not, and he'll even use the illustration now, I think in verse 15, that our fathers, they chastened us according to the flesh for their own good pleasure, but he chastens us because he loves us. So if you're here and you think, yeah, God's going to, God's going to, you know, he's going to chasten me because he's just irritated at me. No, the Bible says that God chastens us for our benefit. He cares that we would be able to run that race. He's not keeping you from some enjoyment. He's keeping you from what he knows will destroy you. Even much of the Old Testament dietary law and, and civil law was him saying, hey, if you do this, man, that could kill you. If you, if you take that, and that, that might destroy you. You take a bunch of wives to yourself, Solomon, that's going to absolutely eat you alive. Don't do it. And then when you do it, God says, no, 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 I want to get you back on the right course. I want you to do right. I want to be careful. I want to help you. It's not God getting even, you know. Sometimes when you're in the grocery store, you see a a kid acting up, and you see like that look, that mom look, you know what I'm talking about? And you're like, oh, dude, that kid's going to get whooped in the car. Mostly because we're like, oh, that kid embarrassed his mom. God doesn't spank us because we embarrass him. God chastens us because he cares about us. And he doesn't want us walking into destructive behavior. And so that's important to remember. God's not some ogre in heaven that's like, hey, I got all these rules. I need someone to follow them. Let me make humans so they can follow my rules. Then I'm going to whoop them if they don't. No. God said, I have all this goodness and wonder. I would like someone to inherit my goodness. Let me create humans. Hey, you can do whatever you want. Just don't eat that tree. Why? Well, Satan says, because you'll know you're, you'll know like God does. No, no, no. Because God knew if we would eat that fruit, all the brokenness of this life would come. God wasn't trying to keep them from knowing what he knew. God was protecting them from a responsibility they could not handle. That's, that goes all the way back to the garden, okay? So we'll leave with that. We'll pick up in verse 5 next week.